chicks are great little hitchhikers and they can travel with birds anywhere that they go. If you can imagine the migration paths, then you can visualize how they are spreading so quickly throughout the continent. In the United States, the Center for Disease Control estimates that there are 300,000 new cases of Lyme disease every year. That makes it the most common vector-borne disease in North America. In this episode of Looking at Lyme, we're going to examine why Lyme disease is spreading so quickly across the continent. Hello, I'm Sarah Cormode, and I'm the host of the Can Lyme podcast, Looking at Lyme. The Borrelia bacteria that causes Lyme disease evolved a long, long time ago. A research team from Yale University found that the Lyme bacteria was quietly circulating in ancient forests over 60,000 years ago, and likely a lot longer than that. Lyme got its name from Lyme, Connecticut. Back in the early 1970s, there was a mysterious outbreak of illness that was affecting many of the local residents. Two mothers desperately sought medical help for their children. They charted their observations, they conducted their own research, and they contacted scientists looking for answers. In 1981, Dr. Willie Bergdorfri discovered the spirochete. What is a spirochete? It is a spiral-shaped bacteria, and if you looked at it under a microscope, it looks a lot like a little corkscrew. Tick populations used to die off during the cold Canadian winters. Then every spring, new ticks would hitch a ride and migrate across the border. Can ticks survive our winters now? Have they adapted to new habitats and climates? These questions require another expert. Janet Sperling is an entomologist who specializes in the modeling of the spread of ticks and Lyme disease, and she joins us now from her lab in Edmonton. Thanks for joining us, Janet. How are you? I'm doing very well, thank you. What is the difference between a black-legged tick and a dermacenter tick? Okay, the black-legged tick is the slightly smaller tick, and a the dermacenter is the big wood tick. So the first thing to kind of keep in mind is that if you look at all the ticks from across Canada, you can divide them into two main groups. The bigger wood tick has kind of this sort of scalloped edge on its behind, whereas the smaller uh, exodes tick has a very smooth behind. So, you know, why do we really care? And the answer is that the exodes tick is associated with Lyme disease, and the bigger wood tick is associated with other diseases, things like Rocky Mountain spotted fever. So these are important distinctions, like your doctor needs to know which type of tick it is, because that helps to guide the doctor so that they can see, you know, what kinds of diagnoses they should be taking a look at. So keeping a tick, if we know we get a tick bite, it's really a good idea to keep the tick as well. I recommend popping it in the freezer, put it in a Ziploc baggie, write the date, write where you found the tick, because, you know, you need to keep in mind that in different areas in Canada, we have different risks of the disease. So if you knew, for example, you were traveling in Ontario and you got the tick bite, but you didn't notice until you were back in Alberta, that's really important for the doctor to know because we know in Manitoba and in Ontario and Nova Scotia, we have a much higher risk of Lyme disease. So again, that's important information for your doctor to know. What's the difference between a tick bite and a mosquito bite? Yeah, well, the mosquito tends to fly in and it pokes its little mouth parts in, pulls the blood out, and then flies off. 
So it's a very short amount of time. Hearing is a big thing. You can hear the mosquito. The tick, generally, you can't hear the tick. So the tick will come along and it'll walk on you for an amount of time. And that might be minutes, it might be hours. I know that sometimes even that the tick will walk along, it'll attach, then it'll come back, it'll reattach. You know, you can, you can have a lot more variation because we're talking about a long period of time. So the mosquito bite, if you uh, made sure that you were being very careful, you still will get a mosquito bite because we just can't avoid all mosquitoes all the time. Is there something about the saliva from a tick bite that is important to know as well? Oh, absolutely. Because the tick is going to be attached for a long period of time, the first thing it does after it cuts its little most parts into you is it's going to cement itself. So it has this special cement so it doesn't get knocked off very easily. And so once it's cemented itself in, it's going to inject saliva and then it's going to pull the blood back into the tick. So this is going to take, um, you know, days for it to move back and forth between injecting the saliva, pulling the blood in. And then the terrible thing is instead of pooping out the fluid out the back end, it's going to push all that fluid back into you. So this means that the longer that the tick is attached to you, the more likely you are to get Lyme disease. And the first thing you want to do is if you have an attached tick, you want to make sure you get it off quickly. So let's talk about the actual bacteria that is then put into our bodies. Um, It's called Borrelia burgdorferi. And how long has that been around in the environment? Well, we know that it's been around since the Iceman, if we're talking about Europe. So we're talking about a very, very long time. But we know in Canada it's been certainly recognized since the late 1980s. So we have a lot of people who were getting Lyme disease in the 1980s And it's pretty clear that this was Lyme disease. So probably they were getting Lyme disease before that. We just weren't calling it Lyme disease. And today, how prevalent are these Lyme-infected ticks throughout Canada? Well, the different regions do have different risk. And so, for example, in Ottawa, you know, you can get them in your own backyard. And this wasn't true, you know, even... You know, in the 1980s, it was pretty unusual. But now people are finding it every year. They're finding ticks in their own backyards. So it's certainly something It's getting bigger. It's getting to be um, a problem. We know that it's moving at maybe about 50 kilometers a year. If we're talking about it moving on the backs of the deer, which is one way it's moving. But if we're talking about having the ticks move in on the backs of the birds, They can go thousands of kilometers. And that's part of what makes this so tricky, is that if a bird is infected in the U.S., where they have higher rates of Lyme disease, and then that bird flies up into Canada, it drops its tick. This becomes a kind of a random thing. That tick can last through, you know, certainly through that summer. It might be able to last through one or two summers. So you might have this little population, but then it disappears. So by the time somebody catches up to it, they go back and they say, okay, let me go and test this area. Well, it's not in that area anymore. So it makes it really challenging when these things are coming in on migratory birds, trying to keep track of where they are. You mentioned that Ottawa and the surrounding areas really has a high prevalence. Do we know why there's a higher prevalence there? 
Well, a lot of these things are, as our climate is getting warmer, and of course, as it's getting wetter, if we knew everything was super hot but super dry, the ticks probably wouldn't do very well. Well, that is to say the Lyme disease ticks wouldn't do very well. The bigger dog ticks would do just fine. But the Lyme disease tick, not only does it need it to be warmer, it also needs it to be wetter. They're very sensitive to drying out. So as we get in, and that would be a place like Ottawa is really quite humid in the summer, that would be a pretty nice place for a tick to set up. So we know that not only do we have all of the climate change, but we use our land differently. And we know that we're much more tolerant to having things like deer walk through our neighborhood. And it used to be, of course, if you were hungry enough, you just ate the deer. We didn't tolerate having a lot of deer around. If you lived on an isolated farm, you had a farm cat. The farm cat was eating the mice. You know, this was a very different way of living our lives. So we've not only changed the climate, but we've also changed the way we're using um, the land around us. Is there any way to stop the spread of the ticks moving around the country? Well, I I think that it would be a pretty tough thing to do. You know, the, the whole idea that we like having migratory birds and we like having deer and everything. So it's something that I don't know that we can stop it. We can certainly adapt to it. And so things like in my house, if I were living in a place where I knew that I had uh, Lyme disease ticks, I'd be very careful with my child's play structure. And, for example, the tick probably won't be able to manage if you put mulch or or things like that under the uh, swing set. But if you had that swing set and you had it at the back of the property and it was surrounded by a lot of bushes and tall grass, that would be an ideal place for your ticks. So we need to to change our behavior and how we relate to going out in the woods if we're going to avoid Lyme disease. Do we have an accurate idea of how many people are getting Lyme disease in the country? Well, no, that's a real problem because we have, we we know it's increasing. There's absolutely no question that people, uh, you know, back in about 2005 said there were maybe 50 Canadians a year. And that was just, you know, a ridiculously low underestimate. We know now that I think it's about 2,000 or so in 2017. So we know that the number is much, much bigger. But the exact number is really hard to pin down. And some people like to say that if you take the exact number that you have the, um, they call it two-tier testing, if you have a positive test result, you should take that number and then multiply by three. But other people say, no, you should take that number and you should multiply by 10. So somewhere between three times and ten times is a very, um, you know, a reasonable estimate. But we have to keep in mind that as a human, you don't really care if it's exactly Lyme disease or something very much like Lyme disease. So if you talk to the people, it seems that everybody knows somebody who has Lyme disease. And part of this is that the people don't necessarily have exactly two-tier Lyme disease. They might have one of the other types of Borrelia. And, for example, there's Borrelia meoni, there's Borrelia miyamotoi, there's Borrelia besetii. You know, the different parts of the country have different risks of the different types of Borrelia. And if we count all those people, we can say it's a very big number. We just don't know exactly what that number is.
If we look to our neighbors to the south, down in the United States, the Center for Disease Control back in 2018 increased their estimates from 30,000 people, new cases every year, and they increased that to 300,000. That's a huge increase. And it just seems to me that, you know, why would we not see a similar increase in Canada? Right. Well, there's no question that part of when, when we're adding up these numbers of people who have Lyme disease, if somebody comes in and they have the tick, they get bitten by the tick, they have the rash, the doctor is supposed to give them antibiotics right there. Like that's good enough to say it's Lyme disease. But the doctor doesn't necessarily fill in the paperwork. So we know that there are a lot of people who are getting bitten by ticks. They're getting the antibiotics, but they're not being counted as a case of Lyme disease. And that's just, you know, it's one of these things that's true of all diseases. And that's why uh, the number 10 times is actually quite common when you take a look at other diseases. You know you only detect a minority of cases, but you recognize that there's a greater number actually out there. What kind of research is being uh, supported right now by the Canadian Lyme Disease Foundation? We have a whole lot of really smart people putting their brains to this. And so one of the first things we can look at is where are we finding Lyme disease? You know, there are areas like, you know, Nova Scotia, New Brunswick. We know that it's a very, it's a high, much higher risk area. So how can we avoid being bitten by the tick? That's one of the big things. Another thing is what sort of policy, you know, at the level of how can we, you know, create a policy where we can say that people who are exposed to ticks should be treated with respect. Because unfortunately, um, there's a lot of people who get Lyme disease, they go to the doctor and the doctor says, oh, no, we don't have Lyme disease here. You're just nuts. You're just looking for attention. And that's not true, not true at all. And because we have, you know, several decades of this kind of attitude, we have to change that attitude. So we're interested not only in the tick, which is carrying the Lyme disease. For example, there's another project about overwintering of the tick. There's some research that says that if the tick has Lyme disease, it's more likely to successfully overwinter. So that's a real problem in a place like Canada because that means these ticks that are being dropped off at random, if they're infected, they're actually more likely to be able to make it through to the next year. So that's a big deal. We need to know more about the tick. We need to know more about how to avoid being eaten by the tick. And also we just need to know at the level of policy, how are we going to prevent people, you know, our children and our grandchildren, from suffering the same way as the people who have Lyme disease right now. I've seen some research in British Columbia recently where they were looking at uh, a moose winter tick survey and had uh, the public involved in that research. I'm just curious about what we can learn by studying the impact that ticks and the pathogens they carry are having on animal populations. Sure. Well, the moose tick is an interesting one because the moose tick is a one-host tick. It rarely bites humans. So certainly I know when I'm given ticks that it's really unusual for the tick to have actually attached to the human. So they tend to spend a lot more time walking around. So if I saw that I I had a moose tick walking on me, I would be much less concerned than if I saw the Lyme disease tick. So one thing we know is that it's a very different system if we're talking about that moose and tick system. One of the other things that's interesting about that is that the moose aren't very good at getting the tick off. 
So if you have exactly that same tick, but you find it on an elk, the elk tend to be much better at grooming the tick off. So there's something specific to moose that they're really not very good at getting the tick off. And that's why you see that they can actually uh, turn into ghost moose. You know, they can pull enough blood out of the moose that the moose ends up dying. Like, um, it's a horrible thing. But I would say that moose tick is something that we look at as a big picture kind of question. It's not especially applicable to the humans. But we do know, for example, if we look at the dogs and we say, oh, my goodness, the dogs in this particular area have a much higher incidence of Lyme disease, we know that the people who are walking the dogs are also probably going to have a higher incidence of Lyme disease. So this is something we really need to study where we find Lyme disease in the entire environment, not just in, um, you know, just looking at in humans. We do need to look at in animals, too. Can people still send ticks to you for your research, Janet? Oh, absolutely. I am very interested in knowing what's going on. And we're finding that the ticks in the different areas of the country are carrying different diseases. And we know that, for example, in British Columbia, there are other types of, you know, what we call Lyme-like disease, other types of Borrelia, which seem to be even more common than the classic Lyme disease. Janet, is there a way that we can modify our behavior so that we can avoid tick bites altogether? Oh, absolutely. That once we know that we could be exposed to a tick, and I'm just going to roll back and say that, you know, back in the 1980s, you know, 1970s and 80s, a lot of people just didn't recognize that they had a problem with ticks in their part of the country. They thought this happened only somewhere else. We know now that the ticks can be found anywhere in Canada. So, we have to say, if we see a tick, we have to say, aha, that is a tick. Don't say, oh, we don't have ticks around here. I can safely ignore it. Thank you so much, Janet, for taking the time to share your expertise with us. And uh, I'm sure we will be talking to you again in the future as we dive deeper into understanding ticks and ultimately how to avoid them when we're playing in the outdoors. Do you have any final thoughts? We've had ticks. They've been around since the time of the dinosaurs. So we know that these are, um, you know, pretty well-adapted animals. But we also have to remember that we're humans, and we have great big brains and very clever little fingers. So I would like to just say that we can figure out how to outwit these ticks. You know, it's, it's something we need to put our brains to it. But the more people we have thinking about it, the better. And I really hold out hope for the future because if we get enough people thinking about it, maybe we can come up with some really clever ways of avoiding being a meal for a tick. That is a lot to digest. Thank you so much, Janet, for taking the time and sharing your expertise. I especially enjoyed learning about what I should do if I find a tick and how to put it in the freezer and ship it off to you so that you can collect more data for us. That wraps up our third podcast. Thank you everyone for listening and stay safe in the outdoors. Mm -hmm.